I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're going to cover the first uh, 14 verses this morning. And um, uh, while you're turning there, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this year I'm going to turn 40. And I got to thinking, you know, if I don't get control of my physical fitness, then it's just going to go downhill fast. So I got out my bicycle this week and I got to knocking the cobwebs off of it and knocking the chain off, I mean, the, the rust off the chain and all that kind of stuff. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to go for a bike ride. So I started trying to go for a bike ride and, and it just, you know, it just wouldn't work. I kept stopping and having to fix it and kept stopping and having to fix it. And, you know, I was starting to get a little frustrated, but then I remembered, you know, I'm a Christian now and I'm with Jesus and that means that he breaks every chain. So I could never get going anywhere. But anyway, so um, just want to talk to you about some things that maybe, uh, maybe have changed us. You know, there are certain things that happen, whether it be in inventions or events, things like that, that change uh, the course of history, uh, or maybe it just changes us as human beings. You know, we could go down the list of history's greatest inventions. We could talk about fire. We could talk about the wheel. We could talk about the printing press or the cotton gin or other things that have really changed the world and, and in a lot of cases maybe even changed the world for the better uh, and in some cases maybe not changed the world for the better. But one thing that I want to talk about, just mention this morning, is smartphones. Um, think about the way um, that smartphones have changed the world. In the grand scheme of things, uh, certainly in the view of history, they're not that old. Um, in fact, there's this fun little, we don't have any Tennessee fans here, do we? Okay, there's one little fun thing that I like to mention. Nobody has ever sent a text message on an iPhone saying that Tennessee beat Alabama. Uh, the last time Tennessee beat Alabama, the iPhone had not yet been introduced. And so we haven't had smartphones for all that long at all. Now, what's interesting about that is that in that amount of time, people that grew up without them, people that grew up having to walk to a wall somewhere and take a phone off the wall and talk on it, they're now you know, connected to those smartphones in a way that it really, truly affects them. I have noticed that attention spans are at an all-time low. People are, are less patient. And what's really scary is if you go riding down the road and you look at the people that are passing you by, they're driving 15 miles an hour faster than you are, and they're not even looking at the road. They're on their phone. That's a scary thing to think about, that that's the kind of the way that the world is. It has changed the world. And let me tell you, if you now are grown up and you use a, a smartphone, and you realize, you know what, it would be difficult for me to, to go back to a time without it at this particular point. Just think about kids that have grown up through their developmental years and they've had phones in their hands the whole time. It's gonna, they're going to be different people than, than even what we, you know, what we are that grew up without them. It's just going to have a dramatic effect on people overall. You can see it cognitively. You can see it just in terms of the, you know, social interaction. Phones have changed the world. Whether you want to like it or not, they have. And so it's something worth looking at and thinking about. But I would like to talk about something um, very different um, that has had an even more profound effect on at least those who experience it. Um, sometimes we meet somebody that's so unique, you will remember them for the rest of your life. Um, I remember... Um, I had already graduated from public school, okay, so, so I'd been in the mix of things, and I had heard people talk bad, I'd heard people talk ugly, and I'd even heard the phrase, you know, cuss like a sailor, but I had never been around a sailor when they were talking like a sailor. I went over to one of my uncle's house one day, and this really nice man had brought a bunch of pecan pies that he had made, but he cussed like a sailor. And I, did, I confess to you that before I saw that man and listened to him talk, I had no idea what that phrase actually meant. 
When he went to talking, I thought, oh my, I've never heard anything like this before. And I still remember him to this day. I can't remember anything that he said, but I know that that was different. I remember him because he was unique. He was different, not necessarily in a good way. But we're going to talk about somebody that changes you in an incredibly powerful way. We're going to talk about Jesus. Um, so those of you that are Christians here this morning, you already know who I'm talking about. When we meet our Savior for the first time, we know that things will be different for the rest of our lives. I will say this, we have a lot of people that walk around today and wear the name of Christ. They say that they're a Christian, but they're no different than they were before they started saying that they were a Christian. Or they've been saying a Christian so, saying that they're a Christian for so long that there was never a significant change at all. Those people I'm not so sure about. But what I do know for a fact is that no person can ever stay the same once they meet Jesus the Nazarene. We will never, ever be the same again once we meet Jesus. Most of us meet Jesus when we are lost, we're burdened by sin, we've given up on hope because we believe that there's nothing that we can do and no one that can save us. Then at the perfect time, Jesus brings righteousness and life to us, changing us from um, sinners condemned to die to righteous recipients of eternal life. He does a lot for us when we meet him, when we truly meet him and become uh, followers of him. He does a lot. So today we're going to be, uh, we're going to look through the lens of baptism because that's one of the big topics in this passage. We're going to look through the lens of baptism to see what sort of change Jesus brings into our life. So the sermon in a sentence is, is, is this. Believer's baptism tells the story of the unmistakable change in us where life replaces death and righteousness replaces sin. Um, so last week I said, you know, the simple, the simple little sentence, if you want it to be a simple little sentence, uh, sin kills, Jesus saves. Um, today, I guess the simple little sentence would be quit sinning. Um, it's, it's kind of simple, it's kind of to the point, but I think that's what this passage is telling us to do. So let's look at it for a minute together and see if that's what we all take from it. So we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? <coughs> we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothingness so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin 
will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, so this first part that we're going to be looking at, first uh, four verses, uh, essentially says that baptism tells the story. Um, we all know that baptism has a meaning. It has, it has a purpose, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So Paul has completely made his case, or he's completed his case for justification by faith alone, <coughs> and he's even indicated that God's glory is greater because of the abundance of sin. So, this is naturally not the first time that Paul would have taught this information or he would have presented this information. He had had these conversations probably in person with people a whole bunch of times. So he knew what kinds of questions and objections he was going to receive. Um, and, and so if God is glorified, this is kind of the question, if God is glorified by the amount of grace he shows, shouldn't, um, shouldn't we sin even more so that his grace and his glory increases? That's the question that somebody's going to ask. Now, I see this as a snarky comment from a legalistic Jew who's trying to raise objections. So, so this is how this goes. Paul would have been witnessing, and remember, if you read the book of Acts, he always went to the Jews first. Whatever city he went to, he'd go to the Jews. He'd tell them about the gospel, tell them about Jesus, connect it to the Old Testament. Somewhere around the time that he got to justification by faith alone, that's when they would drop out. You see, Jews believed that they were justified through strict obedience to the law and also an adherence to the sacrificial system of Judaism. So when they broke the law, there were sacrifices that had to be made. And as long as they lived according to the law and made those sacrifices when they broke the law, they felt like that was their justification, that was their righteousness. Now, you see very quickly, this is a workspace salvation. If they keep the law and if they make sacrifices, then that begins to be a work-based thing. Now, the reality is, and what God wanted it to be, was that they live in accordance to the law because they love him and they love his word. Remember, in, in, in the Psalms, David talks about, I love your law, I delight in your law, I meditate on your law. That was the relationship that he wanted his people to have with the law, not kind of a strict adherence with, with no love, with no appreciation for the God that gave the law. And also with the sacrifices, these sacrifices were to be given joyfully um, and with an understanding that there is a matter of faith there because, you know, even in the Old Testament, people should have understood that the words were there in Scripture that a lamb or a, a bull or a dove is not going to take away your sins. The blood of those animals is not going to take away your sin. Um, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says, for we know that the blood of bulls and lambs are, is not sufficient to cover sins. And so people knew that this wasn't going to cover sins, so there, was, there would have to be an aspect of faith there. But when Paul tells the gospel to Jewish people, I think a lot of times what they would then, to, to kind of poke problems and, and to criticize him, they would then say, Oh, so that means we can just go on sinning. We can live in sin and, and, and face no consequences whatsoever. I believe that's, that's what was going on there, and Paul was responding to that. And in that, I will tell you something that's very, very important. We should all be having conversations with people about God. We really should. Anytime that we have the opportunity, we should be. And you should expect for them to have objections. You had objections when you first come to, to know the Lord. When people were introducing you to God, you would have had objections. Um, and, and so they're going to have objections. They're going to have problems. And, and Paul is willing and ready to answer those questions. He's willing and ready to respond to them in, in a way that will help them understand what's going on. Now, sometimes Paul does get snarky back. 
But overall, we're supposed to give an answer to people with love and gentleness. We're supposed to respond with love and gentleness. And so for the most part in this passage, Paul does that. He does begin the, 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 the situation um, with some pretty good, I would say, some pretty good um, answers here that, that are not necessarily harsh. Uh, they're direct, but it's not necessarily harsh. We don't need to be harsh when we respond to people, especially if they have questions. Even if they are trying to be a little snarky or disrespectful, we don't need to be harsh. Remember, we are introducing them to a savior of love, not a savior of sarcasm. And so we have to be careful about how we respond to people when we're sharing the gospel with them. So I think that it's important, before we get to Paul's answer to this question, if God's glorified uh, the more grace he shows, should we just continue in sin so that he has more glory, has, he, he gives more grace? Let's first talk about what Paul does not say. I think that's important. What does Paul not say is the answer to his issue. And one of the first things that he absolutely does not say is he's not saying, oh, you misunderstood me. You're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith and works. That's not what he's saying. He stands by. He continues to stand by the fact that we are saved by faith alone. So that's what he doesn't say. But what he does say, ultimately, is that he is not allowing his readers or his listeners here to believe that they can continue to sin after they are saved. That's what he's stopping them from doing. You, you can't continue to sin after you are saved. You can't continue to live in sin. So let's point out a couple of important words. So first of all, he says, what shall we say then? This is just the question. Shall we continue or are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the snarky question. Um, the, the, Paul's answer, by no means. Um, this, is, this is where, and see, my English skills are not super, super good here. But if I remember right, a double negative is a bad thing in English. If you say ain't never, that kind of means that you have, right? And so, so from what I understand... Uh, in English, you can't use double negatives, but in the original language of the New Testament, you can. In fact, it just intensifies it. And so this should be translated something along the lines of absolutely under no circumstances will this ever come to pass, right? And so that's what he's saying. By no means can you live in sin. It's absolutely impossible for you to continue to live in sin. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so it's important for us to mention what the word live in it actually means and what that does for the sentence. Paul is not saying, how can we who died to sin ever sin again? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, how can we who died to sin continue to live in sin? That would be characteristic of us. In other words, if you are a Christian, a born-again believer, you should not live in sin. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to continue, you have a sin nature. You are going to continue to do the wrong thing from time to time, but you're not going to live in it. You're not going to wallow in it. You're not going to revel in it. You are not going to continue to be characterized or known as a sinner. That's what this means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So, question blank number one on, your, on the back of your handouts there. Grace does not mean that we can do whatever we want. That's one thing that people have against Baptists, mentioning the Baptist faith and message. Um, you know, one, one Baptist doctrine that's not exactly spelled out the way that, that you always hear it uh, in the Baptist faith and message, um, but Baptists believe in once saved, always saved. The, the fancy theological word is eternal security. What we mean by that is that once you are saved, you will always be saved because it's a work of God, not a work of man. And, and that's what I believe the Bible teaches. 
people immediately object to that by saying, so that just means I can get saved and go do whatever I want because there's no consequences. That's not what that means at all. In fact, you really can't get that if you read more than one verse of the Bible. If you only read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life, and you just like forget the rest of the Bible, then you might could come to that conclusion. But we've got 66 books. We've got the teachings of God from the beginning to quite literally the end. And in this book, He teaches us that life for Him and life with Him is drastically different than life without Him. And so that's what this passage helps us to understand is what that life is going to look like. Paul rejects the idea that believers can continue to sin in the most strongest language that he can possibly come up with. Um, So his reasoning is that we're already dead to sin, so we couldn't possibly live in it anymore. Now this word dead doesn't just mean like dead in the grave, but it means indifferent. It means um, without reaction, without response, without any kind of um, effect. Sin cannot have an effect on us anymore. That's what he's saying. So Paul's question is, how can we remain unchanged after dying to sin? This is a drastic act, and so it's important for us to know this. We cannot. Saving faith changes us. So when we look at verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, Paul appeals to the Romans' understanding about their own baptism. This is really, really significant. Um, Paul says a couple of times, he says, do you not know or we know? And so what he's doing is appealing to standard Christian teaching. So that he's basically, and again, he's talking to Christians, not lost folks, but to Christians he's saying, don't you remember about your baptism? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? So he's, he's appealing to what they do know to help them understand and come to grips with the information that he is presenting to them. The word baptism, it's one of those words... Um, that's not actually translated. Um, you know, a lot of words are, 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 are trans... So in, in one language, it's something, and then in another language, it's a whole different combination of letters, but it means the same thing. Baptism's not like that. It's what we call a transliterated word, meaning as, as best as you could... You could probably read the word baptize in Greek, is what I mean. And people say, well, it's all Greek to me, but, but it is letter for letter, except for the very end, it ends baptizo, letter for letter what you have in English. It's, it's a transliterated word, baptize, baptism. And so when we look at that word, we've got to understand that it means to immerse. That's the symbolism. That's why Baptists immerse you or, or, or fully submerge you in water, because that's, that's what the word means in its strictest, most literal sense. But there's a lot more to this word. Um, So when we immerse, we are going down into death. And when we arise, we are rising into new life. That's kind of the word picture there. So we may read this and paint a picture in our minds of a peaceful ceremony uh, at the beginning of the Christian life. And so, you know, when you have a baptism service in church, you know, the preacher says some nice things, makes you confess Jesus as your Savior. You're baptized, you come up, everybody hugs your neck. When we get that picture of baptism, that may be what we think. And so if you read that word baptism, you remember your baptism, you may think that. But that's not the only picture that the word baptism conveys. So Paul intended to bring up the ordinance, yes, uh, but also the more violent use of the word. So the word baptize uh, can also be used uh, to describe a person who has drowned uh, or a ship that has sunk. And so think about that same word baptized, it it, it could be used for a drowning person or a person that's already drowned or a ship that's already sank. The word is also used 
by a guy named Josephus, not Bocephus, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, when a, a massive crowd of Romans invaded uh, Jerusalem, he used the word baptized, that the, the Romans baptized Jerusalem with their presence. In other words, they fully submerged themselves or are fully engulfed Jerusalem with soldiers. And so that was kind of the picture there. And that's part of what Paul wants you to get in your mind is that the baptism that you went through fully engulfed you. It totally changed your life. You were never the same again. That's what he wanted to convey when he used that particular word. Jesus uses this same term to describe his death. He was baptized into his death. So it, you can see how drastic of an effect the baptism had on Jesus. And so you should understand that it's going to have that drastic of an effect on us as well. The death of our old self is a violent and permanent event. If you are a believer, you are not the person you were when you were born. You were not the person you were before you became a believer. New creation. And we'll spend some time talking about that because we are different. What he's saying is that it is quite impossible for anyone who understands what baptism means to acquiesce cheerfully to a sinful life. This doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes, but we cannot live and revel in joy in sin. We just can't do it. In other words, you can't look at what's happening in the world and say, oh, that's okay. It should get under your skin. Do you get mad sometimes when you see what's going on? It should get under your skin. Now, we don't go out and just judge people. We need to bring the message of the gospel because, listen, one foundational point of this particular passage is that before we are baptized, before we die to our sin, it rules us. It is supreme and sovereign over us. So when you look out at the world and you see how the lost are living, it might make you mad, but you have to understand that they are under the sovereign authority of sin, meaning they can't help it. They really can't choose better. They really can't live better because they are under the authority of sin. The only way we are not like them is because Jesus broke that authority in our lives. It's not there anymore. Then that is an act of Jesus, not something that we have done. So the baptized have died to all of that sinful life. So the next blank that you have, our old life will be dead and buried when we choose to follow Jesus. Our old life is gone, dead and buried when we choose to follow Jesus. So um, if the old life is over, how should we then live? That's a really important question. And verse 4 answers that. He says, We are buried therefore by, him in, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that word walk, is, it could be translated live. We're going to live, but it didn't make sense to say live in newness of life. And so he said walk. And so that walking means the way that we live, the way that we um, act. Um, but also when he says newness, this means a unique way, something that's unique to the way it used to be. Meaning what your life looks like after Jesus will be separate and distinct from what your life was before Jesus. Your goals, your hopes, your plans, all are going to be realigned. Your habits, the patterns of your life, your routines, all are going to be realigned. Your personality may change. If, if you were one way, it probably will change to another way. Because see, here's the thing. 
as much as the world is all about our individuality, being true to ourself, the Bible tells us that our self is sinful and needs to be put to death, and we need to become conformed to the image of Christ. So as you read the pages of Scripture and you learn who Jesus is, you are supposed to become like Jesus, not like yourself. Our true self is sinful. Our true self is put to death when we trust Jesus. Our true self is gone. Our new self is like Him, being conformed into His image. That's what our new self is. Okay, so we are not even the same creature that we were before Jesus saved us. So baptism proclaims that the person who leaves its waters is a new creation. So that is the, that is the picture. When we, when we have a baptism here in this church, that's what we're saying. One creature walked in, a whole different creature walked out. That's what we're saying. And I'm not trying to call y'all creatures, but at the same time we are created beings and we were created one way and now we are created a different way. So the second part of this, there's three parts this time, but the second part of this, uh, I believe, indicates that life replaces death. So Paul says that we are united with Jesus in a death like his and we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so when you read verse 5, for example, he says, For we have been united with him in death uh, like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What this really means is that our old self is becoming even more dead. We are drifting further and further away from what we used to be toward what Jesus is, or what he is like. So we're joining Christ in his death. Um, as he puts to death our sins, we put to death the old man that committed those sins. It's going to try to creep back in. Sin's always going to try to creep back in, but we are putting it to death. So our new selves will have the same unity with the new life and the resurrection of Jesus as our old selves did with the death of Jesus himself. And so we are completely immersed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's, again, the, the baptism imagery there. So death is the end of sin, and the resurrection is the beginning of life for God. So we can't overstate the significance that happens in the life of a believer when they are saved. It is drastic. And that's something that's very, very important. We can't overstate it. Paul says that our old selves have been brought to nothing. That's, that's what that statement means, is, is that it has been brought to absolute nothing. There is nothing about us that is like the way that we used to be. So what that means to be, be brought to nothing is our old self, its desires, its plans have become inactive. It just simply isn't working anymore. They don't work anymore. The believer is no longer dominated by a sin nature. He can rise above it to live more like Christ. Okay, so here's where things get really, really serious for us, uh, especially in this, in this passage. You probably are sitting here saying, you know what, I am a believer. I trust Jesus Christ and I'm saved, but I still make mistakes. This is where the sermon is going to go from, oh yeah, I've heard that, oh yeah, I agree with that, to, ouch, I agree, but this is not fun. Because that's what, that's, what, that's what the point is here. You know, sin leads to death, but Jesus died to free us from sin. Think about that for a minute. The sins that we have committed after we are saved, we chose. We selected those actions and committed them in direct violation to the will of God. Even though He saved us, even though He loves us, 
Even though He permanently indwells us, when we sin after Christ, we make those choices. We are doing that ourselves. So back to the original question for just a moment. What would we say about a person who claims to be a Christian, but they go off and live sinful lives? They go off and revel in sin. What would we say? I don't want to personally answer this question, so I'm going to let Scripture do it. So I'm going to read you from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What John's saying there is that people that go away from the way of Christianity were never part of it. The transaction that you and Jesus have completed is irrevocable. You cannot walk away from Jesus. You might backslide, but you will come back. What John is saying is if they go away and they stay away, they were never part of it. This is harsh. But look, the reason the Bible tells us about this is so that we can realize that that person is not to be discipled, they are to be evangelized. Isn't that important? Isn't a diagnosis really, really important? Think about the medical field. If you've got one disease, but they're treating you for something entirely different, you're never going to get well. And that's the same thing that we have to understand, is that if a person is living in sin, they were never saved to begin with. And so we have to reach out to them with the gospel, not just with discipleship. You can't provide Christian discipline to somebody that's not a Christian. You might say that's tough, but let me ask you this. If the sun is shining, are we going to say that it's nighttime? Simple, right? Well, I suggest to you this morning that a life of sin is just as antithetical to the life of a Christian. The sun shines, it's daytime. You're sinning, living in sin, you're not a Christian. And so that's something that we have to look at, we have to respond to, because probably... You have people in your life that you love, that you care about, and they say they're a Christian, but they're not living for God. Well, let me tell you this. Jesus changes us. He changes us at a foundational level. We're never the same again. I don't mean that they have to live like you, but they do have to live like Jesus. And so we've got to be aware of that. And so that is the diagnosis. So if a person continues to live in a sinful lifestyle, we shouldn't call them a Christian. It's important to know that true Christians have been changed by their encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, we can no more go back to sinning than a dead person can go back to living. If you see somebody die, you know that that is a life-changing event for them. They can't just change their mind on that, just like we can't change our mind on sin. So when our old sinful life ends, we begin a new life with Him. It is different. It is new and it is with Him. Death to the old self and new, uh, death to the old self and new life in Christ are two sides to the same coin. You're going to put to death that old man and you're going to live with God. That's one choice. Two, two things, but one choice. That's what I mean by that. So it is two sides of the same coin. To experience victory over sin is to experience victory over death. They are the same thing. Again, we follow the pattern laid out by Jesus, so we must agree with the reality that we are dead to sin uh, and that the life we now live must be directed by God. We went out of the sovereignty of sin, but we entered into the sovereignty of God. Okay, so when you go from America to Canada, 
when you cross that border, you have left the sovereign United States. The laws of America no longer apply to you when you're in Canada, but the laws of Canada do. And that's what we have to understand, is that when we leave the sovereignty of sin, we enter into the sovereignty of God. And so he is in charge. Now, we were slaves to sin, but now in the next sermon, really, we'll be slaves to righteousness. And so that's what we have to understand. We're going, we were going to live short, miserable lives full of sin and headed towards death. But we have been saved with uh, lives eternal uh, and given the purpose of serving our king. That's what Jesus did. So that is how life replaces death. So also, righteousness replaces sin. So this is the last little bit here. After salvation, the only way that sin rules in the life of a believer is if they give it dominion. So again, this is just kind of where this sermon's transitioning from informational to ouch. If you're sinning, you're giving sin reign in your life. That's something that we have to recognize. If, if we're doing it, it's because we're letting it happen. We're choosing sin over our Savior. We have to be aware of that when we make our choices. Sin wants back in so that it can force us away from God, but we can close the door because Jesus has already paid our debt. Before you were a believer, you didn't have that power. You might go through phases, you might have hobbies that were good hobbies, you might have habits that were good habits, but you didn't really have power over sin. Now you do. We do have power over sin. We can say no to sin. If you find yourself sinning, reclaim the authority that sin has taken. Take it back. Okay, so this is the curative part of the sermon for just a moment. It's going to get rough again for a second. But here's the thing. If you find yourself sinning, take back that authority. It doesn't deserve it. Sin does not have authority in your life. You've given it to it for a little while. Take it back. Take that authority back because God has given you that power. We are not enslaved to sin. We don't have time to go on sinning as if nothing happened on the cross because that's ultimately what we're doing. When we live a life that, that, that ignores the righteousness of God and, and, and dwells in sin, we are ignoring what happened on the cross. And I know that we never want to do that. Sin has lost dominion in our lives. It has lost dominion in our lives. And we cannot give sin an inch in our lives. Now I want to read you one more time verse 13. Boy, this verse is powerful when you really think about it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life <coughs> and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do not give your hands to do evil works. Think about this. These hands can do good or they can do evil. But do not give them over to do evil works. You have the authority now. Do not give your feet to go where evil bids. Don't take yourself to places where evil happens. Don't do it. Do not give your sin, do not give sin your mouth to speak evil's message. Y'all, this is happening way more than we think it is among Christians. Way more than we think it is. Every time we accept and then proclaim a wor the world's philosophy about anything, we are proclaiming evil's message. Okay, So that's something that I think is probably a little new for some people to be thinking about, is that when you accept the world's philosophy and you proclaim it, you're proclaiming evil's message. We're used to things like gossip. We know that's wrong. 
never stopped this in the past. We know it's wrong, though. We know that it is wrong to say mean and hurtful things. We know that it is wrong to tell lies. We know, the book of James tells us that, 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 that our mouths can bring a lot of sin into this world. We know that. Do not let your mouth be used for evil. Do not give your mind over to think evil things. Again, same thing with the philosophies of the world. We are hearing more and more about the thinking of the world now than I think that we used to hear. Used to we saw the, the fruits and the results, but now they're just presenting the philosophies to us as if we're just going to accept them. And sadly, many Christians are. Don't believe what the world is telling you. Don't believe what the world's telling you about you. Don't believe what the world is telling you about them. You know who you are. You know who they are. Comes from the Word of God. We understand this is the authority. You do not need a philosophy. You do not need a critical thinking tool. You do not need anything else to analyze what's going on. Use the Word of God. Don't give your mind over to that stuff. Don't give your house over to sin so that it can come in. Don't do that. There's a lot of places in this world you can't control. You know what? If you walk in Walmart, there's going to be things happening that you don't agree with. And, and, and it seems like if, if we don't shop at Walmart or Target or, or a grocery store or something, you know, you're not going to have any food. But the reality is all those places probably support ideas and things that, that you don't like, but you can't control that. But you can control what happens in your house. That is, that is your domain. Don't give your house over to sinful things. Just don't do it. Don't give it over. Don't give your family over to sinful things so that they become corrupted. Don't do that. Don't bring it there. Don't, don't go there. Protect them. Guard them. Do not give sin a single opportunity to stain what Jesus died to make clean. Holistically, think about it. No part of you no part of your possessions, no part of your being needs to be given over to sin because we're making that choice. That is a choice we make, not a choice that, that sin forces down on us. There aren't circumstances, there isn't context. There is sin and there is righteousness. So what should we do? Instead, save every part of yourself for life, um, to, you know, every part of your life to be presented to God. He's talking about giving it over to God and presenting it to God as an offering. So let your hands, uh, lift your hands and praise Him uh, and busy yourself by serving others. Do you realize how much it would cure in our lives and the lives of others if we would focus on serving other people? I think one of the major problems people have is they got too much time on their hands because they're not helping anyone else. They're focused on themselves, and so they get lost in their own identities and lost in their own little problems. But if you serve someone else, it fixes a lot of those problems for you almost right away. Let your feet take you to His house, to the Lord's house. Let them take you to the highways and byways to proclaim His message. Now, I'm not saying go be a street preacher, but what I am saying is if you have an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, don't bring up the weather. Don't bring up... I love Alabama football, but don't talk about it. Don't bring up the Braves. Don't bring up anything else. Just tell them about Jesus. It's the most important conversation you can ever have with someone. It's the most loving conversation you can ever have with someone. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what He's done in your life. Tell them what He can do in their lives. Let your voices sing His praises. Let your voices proclaim His message. 
speak life to those who are still dead in sin. Key feature of this passage, we're passing from death to life. We're passing from sin to righteousness. Here's how we do this. We use the members of our body to do that. Let your house be a place devoted to the Lord and give Him dominion. Our house should be like the kingdom of heaven. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are places of earth you can't control. You don't have any dominion, but we do have it at home. Let's let the will of God be done in our house as it is done in heaven. Let us make sure that we do that. Let us make sure that we're giving him dominion in our home. Let your family be warriors for God rather than enemies of God. Again, kind of stark contrast, but that's the reality. You know it, but it's hard when you, when you hear it said because your family, the people you love most, they are either warriors for God or they are enemies against God. That's hard to hear, but that is what the Bible says. There is no middle ground. There's no Switzerland for us to live in. We are either for God or we are against Him. We are to be used by God, not by the devil. We cannot give over any part of our lives to sin. That's your last blank, any part. So we are now um, in the stage of our lives where we have been forgiven. Before we lived under the judgment of the law, we had been redeemed, and, or before we lived under the judgment of the law, but we have been redeemed and now we live free of sin and its punishments. We live freely for Him. So that's not your last blank. Uh, grace provides the power for us to live in righteousness. So now we have the choice. Will we live in sin or will we live in righteousness? Now, I think you know that what God wants for us to do is for us to live in righteousness. So let's wrap this up. Does this all mean, another question, does this all mean that if we ever sin again, we will lose our salvation? Is that what that means? No. That's not what Paul's teaching. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. Um, no, we are not to live in sin. And, 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 and yes, we do have authority over the sin that's in our lives. But... God's grace is sufficient. It is sufficient for your life. If you make a mistake, if you stumble and fall, and we all do, God's grace is sufficient. This message is about living in sin, allowing it to live and fester in your life. That's what this message is about. It's like this. You know, professional singers, they hit a bad note every now and then, but they're still good at singing, and it's just a regular, it's a, 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 a an occurrence that happens from time to time. It's the exception, it's not the rule. Now, if a professional singer hit nothing but bad notes the whole time, no one would consider them a professional singer, would they? And so that is what we need to realize. We have been made righteous, but we still have a sin nature. So as a Christian, we're going to live righteous lives, but every now and then we're going to hit a bad note. We're going to do something that we're not supposed to do. We've got to work at it. We definitely don't want it to happen again. Because we are Christians. We want to honor God with our lives. So we certainly don't want to just brush off the mistakes that we make. We want to make sure that we don't make those same mistakes over and over again. That creates a pattern. But we are saved. We will be forgiven. And let me tell you, as powerful as sin is, and it is nothing to laugh at, it doesn't have ultimate authority in your lives. Any power it has now, we're giving it. We're giving that authority. And it is 
for us to take it back and to give that dominion, to give that authority to God. There are going to be some tough choices involved in that. I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even trying to make light of that. There will be tough choices. When we give over dominion to God, He's going to ask you to do things that you never thought He would ask you to do. Because righteousness is not just avoiding sin, but it's also working the righteousness that God has for you. And so it will be worked. But He has changed us. He's also changed the rules for our lives. So after salvation, we are still human, but we have been changed to a new person who walks in righteousness of life. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. We are all human. And there may be areas in your life where where you're saying, you know what, I still struggle with this. That's probably going to be the case for all of us. We're going to have areas that we just, we haven't got this. We haven't mastered this yet. So there are those areas. But let me tell you, you can master this. Because Jesus has destroyed the chains that bind you to sin. He destroyed them. Not you. It's not something you've done. He destroyed them. Turn over the authority that sin might have over you. Turn that over to God. Let Him lead you in a different direction. He will. We once were slaves. Now we are free to follow Him. So follow Him. And tell other people what He can do. Look at what sin makes people do. Look at the sorrow. Look at the shame. Look at the pain. Sin drags them down roads that they never want to go on. We have a message, and the only loving and compassionate thing we have to do is share that message with them. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for a Savior that died for us. And Lord, as strange as it sounds, I thank you for letting us die with him. We have died to sin. We have died to the authority of this world. And you have given us a new life. It's an understatement to say better. You have given us access to righteous life. We know that when when Jesus saved us, you wiped away our record of sin. But Father, we want to live righteous lives. We want to live like Jesus. So Father, I pray that you help each of us to find that strength in your word, to find that strength that is dwelling inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We have the example. I pray that we will follow it. And I pray that our message, what we proclaim to other people, will not be one of judgment, but will be one of righteousness will be one of love, will be one of compassion, because Jesus showed us compassion. As Paul says in another letter, such were some of us. We were all sinners before we were saved. So I pray that we can proclaim a message of grace and salvation for anyone who would believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.